Good to see all of you this morning. Um, Let's go before God and have some prayer, and then we'll uh, jump into the lesson. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word. It is what feeds us and what fills us. Pray that you would increase our hunger for righteousness, and that we would thirst for you, and that you would quench us, and that you would feed us today. And as we learn, Lord, this morning about you and about your promises, um, we pray that it would transform us, that as our minds are renewed, so too would our hearts and our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we've been talking about covenant theology, and uh, we're not going to talk about the Mosaic Covenant today, which is amazing. Um, I left some things on the table that we maybe could have talked about, but I just kind of decided it's not really something that will impact you super deeply. They're not like super, um, I don't know, relevant things for us as a church. So I I decided to just kind of leave those. If you want um, to talk more about Mosaic Covenant with me, you can. Um, Or if you want to know what I left on the table, we can talk about it. But I I thought that our time would best be used um, moving forward to the Davidic Covenant. Uh, Because we have about four or five weeks in covenant theology left, and then Brett is going to take over for the rest of the uh, semester as Masha has a baby. Um, so we're um, going to switch off around May. So we got to wrap up some stuff, which means we have to talk about the Davidic covenant. Um, and if you remember, we've always talked about the big picture, right? Every covenant has answered a question. That's how we've been looking at it, to keep our minds focused on why does it matter, right? Why are we talking about the Mosaic Covenant for 16,000 weeks? Because it's teaching us about Jesus, right? There's something that it's telling us. It's answering a question. Um, And we've done this since the beginning, right? We've talked about how the Covenant of Works, after the Covenant of Works... Now sin has entered the world. Now depravity and curse has entered the world. And the question that Adam and Eve are going to ask is, what now? Is there any hope for us? And then God gives them a promise, right? In Genesis 3.15, that a seed would come from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise his heel. So naturally, you're going to ask more questions, right? Well, what happens if the serpent destroys the woman before she can give birth um, to the promised seed, right? What happens if sin increases and the line of the serpent devours the line of the woman? Or, right, what happens if sin increases and God judges the earth before the promised seed has had the chance to come and save us? Um, And that's what the Noahic covenant addresses, right? Sin has increased, the serpent is, is threatening to wipe out um, the line of the woman and Noah and his family, but God preserves them, right, graciously. God judges the world, but then he also promises to preserve the world until the end of times, which means no longer are we afraid that the serpent is going to win. No longer are we afraid that God will judge the earth too soon. Now we have a certain promise that the promised seed will come and he will be able to save us. And then we jump into the Abrahamic covenant because now we're asking questions again, like, okay, so we know the promised seed will come, but from whom is he going to show up? And you have Abraham, right? And his two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, one is a son of promise, a son of covenant, and the other is not. Um, An ironic thing that I learned recently is that Islam claims the heritage of Ishmael, right? They claim um, that they are descended from Ishmael, right? So they're sons of Abraham, just like uh, Uh, the Jews were, which means that they're the line of the serpent, right? They're not the line of covenant. They're the opposite line because those two lines are always opposed. Ishmael and Isaac are always at war. Ishmael has 12 sons, right? He has 12 tribes come from Ishmael. 
12 tribes from Isaac. But these are two tribes that are at war, two families, two brothers who will constantly be fighting. Because one is the promised, from, from one, the promised seed will come from Isaac. But now we start to ask questions like, okay, so we know he will come up. We, we, we know he will show up. We know from whom he will show up. And now there's promises attached to Isaac through the Abrahamic covenant. But we don't know what kind of person the promised seed is going to be. We don't know what it means for him to crush the head of the serpent. And we don't know what it means that the serpent is going to bruise his heel. And so the Mosaic Covenant starts to unpack all of these elements of who is the promised seed going to be? What is he going to do? What does it mean that he will crush the head of the serpent? What does it mean that he will be bruised? So we start to see these things unpack through the Mosaic and beyond. And what the Mosaic Covenant taught us, right, is that one of the first things this promised seed is going to do is he's going to keep the law perfectly. He's going to be a mediator, in the pattern of Moses, or rather Moses was a mediator in the pattern of Jesus. He's going to be the one who stands between God and the people and says, take me and leave them. But he's going to be a prophet who speaks face to face with God and then brings us God's word because he is the word. He's going to be a priest who offers himself as sacrifice for the propitiation of the people's sins. And he's going to be the priest who does all that is in God's heart because he will love the Lord Perfectly, And we saw how the, the, the feasts and the ceremonial systems in the Mosaic Covenant were all pointing to the fact that new creation comes through the promised seed. That creation happens on the seventh day, but new creation happens on the eighth day. So when Jesus shows up as the priest of a better covenant, he is raised on the eighth day, signaling new creation. He's the priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's not a Levite. He doesn't institute a Mosaic covenant, but now better. He institutes a different kind of covenant. And he's a king. He rules over his people. So if you were an Israelite, and you're learning all these things about the promised seed, and now Saul has been vanquished, right? David, a man after God's own, God's own heart, has been put in place... You're an Israelite. What questions would you still have about the promised seed? So we've learned a lot about the promised seed, right? What kinds of things he's going to do, all these things that I just said. But what questions do you still have about the promised seed? When will he come? When will he come? Yeah, that's a that's a huge question. What else? Will he win? Okay, how will he know that he is the promised seed? Will he win? Meaning, will he actually have victory? Yeah, yeah. That was from the judges, too. When God was with them, then they were able to win the Lord's battle. Yeah. The Messiah needs to, needs to win when he goes up against the serpent. Yeah. Yeah, he needs to have God on his side. Will we recognize him when Okay, will we know him when he comes? How will, we, how will we know that this is the guy? All good questions. Matthew? I think there's a lot of question about what victory would look like. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for us? Yeah. Yeah, what will victory look like? 
Okay, what type of person? Yeah. Yeah, or you could say, what kind of king is he going to be? Is he going to be a king like Saul or a king like David? Think about, um, think about the Mosaic Covenant. What happens if Israel breaks the Mosaic Covenant? They, they get exiled. Do you think that that would be in the back of people's minds as they're thinking about God's promises? Is what happens if we lose the land? Have God's promises failed? Have we lost God's promises? What happens now? <laughs> right? That's, that's a legitimate question and fear for Israel. Because things leading up to the kings were not great. I, we've talked about how Israel, even at Sinai, right, they, they made the golden calves. But if you read the book of Judges, you don't come away thinking, man, they're going to they're gonna nail this. Right? These people, they're great. They're going to keep this land for sure. No, you read it, and it's like whenever there's a judge, things are good because the judge helps them, you know, sets them straight. Uh, they, they have victory over their enemies. But as soon as the judge dies, it just crumbles and everyone goes back to doing whatever they want and to sin. And the book of Judges ends on a pretty horrifying note, right? Clan warfare, the tribe of Benjamin almost being wiped out. They bring in wives who are not Israelites in order to restore the tribe of Benjamin. Just a whole lot of really horrible stuff happens. So we don't, you don't come away from the book of Judges thinking, yeah, Israel is, is definitely going to stay in the land. They're going to nail this. You come away thinking... It's just a matter of time until they're exiled. So as things trend this direction, naturally, people are thinking, so what, how do we know God's promises will be kept if we go into exile? Right, will God prevent exile? Will we go into exile and then God will do something about it to fix it? Um, what are they looking for? Right? What's their, their assurance in other words, they need an assurance that their failure to keep the law won't disrupt the promises of God. They need an assurance that their failure won't disrupt the promises of God. And this is where the Davidic covenant comes into focus. It starts, it starts to answer these questions. It doesn't give us all the answers, right? It doesn't tell us, well, Jesus is going to come in the year 0 AD, um, so that's in, you know, 500 years or so, so mark y'all calendars. He's going to look like this. He's going to have brown hair. Um, he's going to have a birthmark on his left shoulder. Um, no, it, it doesn't work like that, but we start to learn that the answer to the question when is soon, what kind of king is he going to be? He's going to be a good one. All right? What, um, will he have victory? Yes. And I think what we'll, we'll see is that the Davidic covenant offers an assurance that even though Israel might go into exile, that God's promises will be kept. Um, and we'll even start to see how even if this king who comes would be disciplined by God... His throne will endure forever, which is a deep assurance. So, what we're gonna we're gonna look into that today. So, turn to Second Samuel seven.
So in 2 Samuel 7, David uh, is king, right? And he has rest from his enemies. He has had victory um, over the Philistines and over others. Um, and now, the, now David thinks to himself, I'm going to build a house for God. Right, I'm going to build a temple to house the ark of the Lord. So he says this, right? The king said to Nathan the prophet, verse 2, I'll, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan says to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. And have cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So, a lot happened in that passage. Um, but suffice it to say, right, God is making a covenant here. Now, the word covenant doesn't show up, but whenever God is making promises and oaths, um, he is making a covenant. So if it's a covenant, right, our first question is, well, what kind of covenant does God make here? What kind of covenant is this? Is this a grace covenant? Is this a works covenant? Is this both? What do you think? How do you know? He makes promises of peace and a place for them to dwell in peace. He doesn't make any requirements on him to do that. He says, I'm going to give you this place for your safety and for your peace and comfort. Yeah. In other words, how do you know if it's a grace covenant or a works covenant? Who is the burden on to fulfill it? It's on God. God does not demand anything from David. He does not say, hey, David, as long as you do this, I'll give you this. As long as you sacrifice 16 chickens to me every day for three years, I will give you an eternal kingdom. No, he just says, here you go. I'm going to do this for you. 
which means it's a covenant of grace. There's no, nothing that David has to accomplish in order to earn this covenant. However, there is a, a verse that should stick out to us and it starts to build our, our understanding of covenant relationship um, a little bit more because even as God is making a promise to David, he says in verse 14, I will be to him, this promised king, a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. In other words, the kingdom that God is promising, this, this throne that will be established forever is eternal and unconditional. God is promising that a king in David's line will always sit on the throne. But he's also saying that specific human occupants of the throne are subject to God's discipline based upon their obedience. So even as this is a covenant of grace, there is still this idea that the, the man who sits in the throne is subject to God's discipline. That he's subject to contingent blessings or curses based upon his faithfulness to God. But the steadfast love will not depart from him. Which means that, whoops, that even as this is a covenant of grace, there is still this element of works that will apply to the king. And that that shouldn't surprise us because if you think about Jesus, was Jesus in a covenant of grace with God or a covenant of works with God? In a covenant of works. Right. So it shouldn't surprise us that, yes, of course, the promised king is going to be in a covenant of works with God. He is going to have contingent blessings, right? He's going to have a reward he can earn or a curse that he could earn. But what turns it all on his head, right, is that when Jesus shows up, he doesn't commit iniquity. Yet he still gets disciplined with the rod of men. And we'll start to unpack that as we continue to learn about the Davidic covenant. But from the big picture, right, it's a covenant of grace that God is unconditionally promising these things. But this promised king is going to be in a covenant of works with God. What else does the Lord promise in Second Samuel 7? Just go through all the things that God says, starting in um, verse 9, right? What does God say he'll do? Just look for all the I wills, right? What does God say? Make you a great name. Yeah, I will make you a great name. Mm-hmm. I'll point a place. Yeah, men, violent men shall not afflict them. What else? I will give you rest. I'll make you a house. I'll give you an offspring. Establish his kingdom forever. Establish his throne forever. A couple more I wills. Yeah, I will be his father. He shall be my son. 
Yeah, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Yeah. Yeah, God God promises quite a lot in this covenant, right? I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And when you look at the content, these are not small promises either. Right? These are not I will give you some carrots on Wednesday. Or I'll I'll come over to your house on Thursday and I'll help you move. It's I will give you a great name. I will give you offspring. I will give you a, an everlasting kingdom. I will give my people a place, and I plant them in it where they will have rest from all their enemies. I will establish the throne of your offspring's kingdom forever, and I will discipline him, but my love will not depart from him, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. These are not small promises. These are big, amazing promises that God is making. So now let's turn back to the question, right? What questions does this covenant, what questions that Israel is having, as we talked about um, at the start, how does this address those questions? How does this covenant with David address those fears that Israel has? Namely, right, what happens if we break the covenant? Um, How do we know that this guy is going to have victory? Um, What kind of king is he going to be? How does this answer those questions or begin to answer those questions? Yeah. And it gives them that, gives them that assurance that well, God's steadfast love will not depart from them. They won't be put away like Saul was. Yeah. Jonathan? I think that part of the maybe overly obvious reason that Messiah is going to succeed is God's already said, I've got his back. Yeah. Yeah. God supporting you, pretty much nothing can go wrong. Exactly. Absolutely. If God is on your side, right, who can be against you? So this gives tons of assurance that God will be on this king's side. Which means... The new part that even when the king is on God's side, God will still bring him back around. Yeah. Yeah, even if the king, and maybe a different way to say it is... Is nothing, not even sin or death, can shake the foundations of God's promises. Does this covenant promise that Israel will not go into exile? Why not? It sure seems like it. Think, yeah, Matthew. So just that, or there's that I think 
the fact that the throne is eternal, it's established forever, points to the fact that it's not an earthly kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, it will last longer than the earth will. But if the throne endures forever, that means that the people and the kingdom will endure forever. Think about it like this, too. Um, when God promises, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and plant them so that they will dwell in their own place, it's kind of weird for him to say as they're in the land of Canaan. Because as you hear that, you're already, at least I would be like, we're already in a place. You've already planted us in a land. Why are you promising to give us a place? Like, we have one. So, what's going on here, right? What's, what's up with the land of Canaan? And that, what the Davidic covenant is doing is starting to shed some of the, I'm not sure how to quite phrase it, but it's starting to show that the Abrahamic promise, right, of a land was not about Canaan. That God actually has a, has a destination in mind that is better than Canaan. That even as Israel is in Canaan, right, they're in a place, they're in a land, God is giving them rest from their enemies through David, his, uh, his king, but he's promising even more than that. He's saying, I'm going to give you a place so great that you'll not be disturbed by violent men ever again, and you shall have rest from all your enemies in this place. Which means that exile from Canaan won't affect wherever that place is. They don't have to fear exile because it's okay. God has promised us a place where we'll have rest from all our enemies. It gives them assurance that even if we leave Canaan, it's okay. Canaan is not the final destination. God, in bringing us out of Canaan, is going to lead us to a better place. And Hebrews tells us, right, that even in, even in the Abrahamic promises... Israel understood that they were not looking for an earthly land. By faith, they understood that they were looking for a heavenly land. And that's what the Davidic Covenant is starting to show us more visibly. That we're talking about a kingdom that will last forever. A throne that will not change. A people that will never be afflicted by violence. That gives a lot of assurance. Right, that sin and exile can't change these promises. And add that to the fact that even though this covenant is an unconditional promise to David, it's it's still a there's still blessings and curses that will fall upon the king, which shows us the fact that Wherever the king goes, Israel will go to. We're starting to see that the relationship between Israel and the king is going to be deeper than simply, yeah, he rules over us, and sometimes he's good and sometimes he's bad. What actually starts to happen throughout the rest of Israel's history is when the king is righteous, the people prosper. And when the king is wicked, the people suffer. Because now there's, there's starting to be even more clearly this this link between the king and the people. That if the king survives, if the king is righteous, the people are blessed and the people survive. And if the king is wicked, the people are suffering. But what the Davidic covenant shows us is that there is coming a king who even if he is disciplined, God's steadfast love will never depart from him, which means his steadfast love will never depart from the people. 
which means that this king will be that no no sin can shake this kingdom. No curse will come upon this people because God's love will overpower this sin. It's not hard to, to tie this to Jesus, right? To see how Jesus as our king, that our fate is tied to our king. If our king is righteous, we are blessed. And Jesus is the most righteous king there ever was and ever will be. And his throne will endure forever, which means we cannot be shaken. Not even our own sin can change the promises of God. We can't lose the kingdom. We can't shake its foundations. Because its throne has been established forever. Jesus is a righteous king who will endure forever. And God's steadfast love will never depart from Jesus. Which means his steadfast love will never depart from you. Jonathan. So you said that the king survives, the people survive, the king is righteous, the people prosper. Two things. One, theoretically, well, two theoretical things. One, that would mean that the people could be absolutely evil if they had a righteous king and still prosper. And two, that would mean that if something bad did happen, they can just they could just say, Well, our king wasn't righteous. Like, is there anything preventing them from doing that? From blaming the king? And, like, the logic part of it, you know, that you said king right, king right, people prosper. Mm-hmm. They totally won't Yeah. No, you're right. Apply that to us and Jesus. Are we good? Or are we wicked? Or evil. And yet we prosper. Because Jesus is righteous. Do you see? There's a link. (laughs) There's a connection that even if we're wicked, even if we're sinful, because we have a king who is so good and righteous, we can have blessing because it's God's grace to us. It works for the king. The king has to earn it. But for us, it's grace. And that's the relationship that we have with Jesus. Dying on the cross and living a perfect life was a covenant of works for Jesus. He earned a reward. And we get to share in the reward because he's our king. Not because we've earned it, but because he earns it, it's grace to us. Because he's a mediator, right? A mediator stands and whatever happens to the mediator, right? If the mediator is righteous, then we get blessed. If the mediator is wicked, right, we suffer because he's standing in our place. And so when Jesus stands in our place as our king and our mediator and our priest and takes upon himself the punishment for our sin, our sin is wiped away. We are uh, blessed because of him. It means that this promise can't be broken even by our own wickedness. Does that make sense? Okay. So, what does it mean that God is going to give David a great name? You guys know of any other times in Scripture God promises a great name? Abraham, yeah, I will make your name great. Promises it to, promises it to David. Anyone think of any other times, Charlie? Uh, 
specific name that will be above all the other names? Yeah, Philippians. We're just talking about Jesus. Yeah, I might be wrong, but I don't think there's any other occurrences. I think it's just Abraham, David, and Jesus. Am I right, Brett? Are there any other times where God promises a great name? I couldn't find any others other than Abraham, David, and then Philippians, name above every other name. But I feel like I'm missing one. It comes close with Moses. I don't know why everybody out on like, you a great name Moses says, no, your name will be muddy. Okay. Okay, maybe Moses, but for sure Abraham, David, and Jesus. So what does a great name mean? What does it mean that he's going to make, um, he's going to make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth? What are some great names? Bob, Jerome, it's pretty good. Is that what he's talking about? I want to name our kid Bob. Masha won't let me. What is he talking about? Okay. Someone who stands out, right? More like. Someone who honors God and lives a life that honors God. Okay, someone who honors God and lives a life that honors God, possibly. Sure, yeah. In opposition to God, I was like, yeah, this is quite different. No, there's, I think you're onto something, right? There are plenty of people in the Bible who tried to make for themselves a great name, and we laugh at them. Charlie, did you have your hand up? I just wonder if there's a double entendre here. Like, obviously, today we know who David is because, in one sense, God fulfilled that promise. We know that, you know, the very popular David Yeah, double meaning, pointing to the fact that even though David's name was tarnished by his sin, right, with Bathsheba, yet we don't think of David and think, oh yeah, that adulterer and murderer. We think the man after God's own heart and the man redeemed by God and forgiven of his sins, covered by the blood of Jesus. And obviously, if you think about... The main characters of the Bible is God, right? God's the main character. But some of the the great people of the Bible, people that you say, okay, tell me a Bible story. You say, well, let me tell you about Abraham. Let me tell you about David. Those are two of of the greatest stories, right? Some of the greatest names in the Bible because there's honor attached to the names because God was with them, right? God had something special to give to them. But notice how... A great name happens after death. Abraham, I'll make for you a great name. 
meaning honor and glory and renown, but that happened after his death. David, right? He didn't get all of that during his lifetime because his, the end of his life was pretty messy, right? He didn't go out in a blaze of glory. He went out humbled and suffering. Jesus. He didn't go out of this world in a blaze of glory. He went out humbled and suffering and then was given a name after his death, a name above every name. Because a great name means getting glory, but it happens after death. Which means that when God promises a great name to David, what he's saying is, death is not the end for you. In fact, apply that to the king, right, who will be disciplined with the rods of men. Death will not be the end for him. Death will only be the beginning. That's God's promise, is that there is glory awaiting you after you die. And because we're tied in with the fate of the king, what that means for us is that when Jesus died and then received glory, we will follow that same path. When we die, we will receive glory. God's glory, Jesus' glory. But it probably won't look like going out in a blaze of glory. It's probably not going to look like ending your life on this, you know, you're going to just get better and better and better and, and end in a huge blast of bright light. It's probably going to look more like Jesus. We will be humbled. We will suffer. We will die. And we'll receive glory. Because that's what Jesus did. Because Jesus is the Son of God, but also the Son of David. The King who would be disciplined for our iniquity, but then who would die and receive the greatest name. So that's the Davidic covenant. Do you have any questions or thoughts about the Davidic Covenant? I'm not planning on doing another lesson on it, um, unless you all want to. But I think that's probably sufficient for, for our purposes, and we'll, we'll move on. Are there any other final questions or comments? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, next week we'll talk about something, and then... After that, we'll talk about something different. And then for the next two weeks after that, um, I'll probably, we'll probably talk about something. <laughs> generally, generally, the overview is we're going to go through the rest of the covenants, which means we have the new covenant next. We're going to talk about the new covenant. Um, and once we've talked about the new covenant for maybe one or two weeks, um, I want to talk about the church today and our relationship and how we are connected to the covenant, what that means for us for two weeks or so, roughly. Yeah, Matthew. Just thinking about the rest that God promises to David and the Israelites during David's reign, um, and thinking, you know, throughout David's life, God fought victories through David to give them temporary rest in the land. And then after, you know, David couldn't build a temple because of the man of war, and Solomon and peace did that. Is there any... Could we argue or could we say that that was because David was fighting for temporary peace and the temple being built was a picture of that victory having been won by 
obviously the temple itself wasn't permanent, but I mean, is that part of the picture, or is that? Yeah, because why did why did David win? Yeah, because God was with him, all right? David wins because God is with him. Israel, when they go out to war, if they take the ark with them, so I mean they're not just using it as a talisman, they win because God is with them, right? Emmanuel, God with us, and the steadfast love of God never departing from Jesus means that Jesus will have victory because God is with him. And a temple means God's presence, Right? So when it says that this king will build a house for God, that means that in this land there will be a temple with God's presence, which means rest, because there, that means God will win. So it's all tied together in like a, a knot of victory and rest and peace, and God's presence are all inextricably bound up. You can't take away God's presence and have peace. You can't take away, you can't have God's presence and not have victory. They go together. Okay, so I saw Charlie. Charlie, your, your hand was up. I don't mean, I hesitate. It's just a reflection. Okay. I saw that comment that you made about like, Christ not going out in the blaze of glory. And I think, to some degree, I think Jesus did die in battle, but it's because all of his teaching was inverting the thoughts and expectations of the people that the most glorious thing that you could do is die in humility, like he did. Mm hmm. Yeah. Like that's, he's, he's setting a precedent to glory isn't dying in the battlefield, falling on your sword or, or whatnot. It's actually enduring and persevering until the end to receive the crown, leave the crown for the glory that one exhibited in humility and, and martyrdom effectively. Right? That's what his followers go on to do, not to crusade, but to spread the good news and to die the same death that Christ died. And so in that sense, it's, it's furthering the work that Christ was doing in his life, which was inverting expectations and desires, right? Like the, king, the kingdom wasn't going to come like you thought. The warfare doesn't look like you think. It actually looks like this. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, we say that he defeated sin, Satan, and death at the cross. So I think in some sense we could say like, he died in battle, but the glory was not what the world expects glory to be. Yeah, absolutely. Another, Jesus was setting that precedent all throughout Matthew, right, where he says, he who wants to be first, be last. Be your slave. You want to be greatest, be the least. And he lived that. All right, uh, Jonathan, do you have a quick question? What exactly happened in the Levi's sons of the Ark and the Philistines? How about we talk about that uh, yeah, we'll talk about that later because we're, we're almost out of time. But we can talk after. Okay, unless there's any other comments or questions, um, let's pray and we'll get ready for worship. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have blessed us with a kingdom that can never fall. That you have made us citizens with Christ our King. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we have assurance that even though we are wicked, we will be blessed because of your steadfast love on Jesus and to us because we carry his righteousness. You have given it to us free of charge. Lord, I pray that we would live this out, that we would worship you and rejoice in thankfulness this morning as we come into your presence, that we'd hold on our minds why we're here, who we are, and who you are. And Father, thank you for all you've done. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our King, Jesus. Amen.